Welcome back to the Cyclotist Podcast, everybody. It is Friday, May 27th, and we are just two days from the end of this Giro d'Italia. Today, it's going to be a bit of a bit of a preview episode. We're going to talk a little bit about what's happened over the last couple of days, but mostly we want to look ahead to what appears to be set up as one of the best final weekends of Grand Tour racing we have seen in some time. I'm not going to say the best. We've had some pretty fantastic Grand Tours over the last couple of years. I'm thinking of like, you know, Roglic v. Pogacar, final time trial stuff at the Tour de France. There's been some exciting final moments, but this one looks set up to be pretty fantastic. So, let's get into it. Today on the show, we've got Kit Nicholson. Kit, how are you? I'm all right, yeah. TJF. And Ronan, welcome back. Thank you. Hiya. And Johnny Long. Hello. Possibly the Johnny Long bot. We're un- unclear on, on who exactly you are. Ian is investigating as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know what we're talking about, I don't know, read more comments on the comment section in Cycling Tips. Uh, Johnny has been accused of being little more than some clever AI, uh, where we've fed Ian's work and Ronan's work and my work and Dane's work into an algorithm and out popped Johnny. Uh, I'm, I'm choosing to, to see this as a compliment, Johnny, because your, your breadth of skills and, and styles is so, well, so broad that people think you might be a computer. It's the nicest thing I think anyone's ever said to me, so that's how I'm, that's how I'm viewing it. <laughs> All right, let's get into the show today. Where are we on the GC right now? It's close. It's very, very close. Let's sort of run through exactly how close and talk a little bit about how we got here. Kit, where are we at? Uh, well, we are... Yeah, in the same position on GC, more or less, certainly in the top uh, three, as we have been for, well, it feels like quite a while. And um, basically, we've got three seconds between Carapaz and Jai Hindley, um, and then a further, well, about a minute to Lander, um, whose team is doing everything they can, along with Bora Hansgrohe, to dethrone Ineos and Carapaz. But so far, they've been unsuccessful. Yeah, most of the movement has been lower down with uh, various riders dropping out or dropping time. Our friend Guillaume Martin is now 14th and Joao Almeida unfortunately had to go home from COVID. Um, but yeah, so the top three are separated by a minute five and Nibali is, a, is in fourth, um, almost six minutes down. Some kind of surprising names still in the top 10 that are worth a, a brief mention. I, I mean, Nibali for me is one of them. I may, maybe shouldn't be surprising anymore. He is a fair ways back off of the podium. You know, Landa is 105 back and, and Nibali is 553. So that would be quite a task to overcome with two days of racing remaining. One of which is a time trial where it's not particularly, it's what, 17K, I think. And so the time gaps are not going to be many, many minutes, right? But it's 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 not impossible that Nibali could end up on the podium at his last year to tell you. I mean, all it would take was one of those top three having, you know, a Simon Yates of a day and, and losing eight, ten minutes. Well, losing four minutes is all they actually need to lose. And Nibali could be could be on the podium. I'm not saying it's likely. I'm saying it's still possible. Or a COVID positive. That's what we forget. You know, it still yeah. drags on. But you'd assume that... I don't know. 
you'd assume if you've got a COVID positive and you're in that podium spot, you're going to try and, I don't know, shouldn't shouldn't speak too much, get myself in trouble, <laughs> but at this point, it'd be bold to, you know. You're not gonna you're not yeah. gonna leave the pink jersey, are you? If you're if you've got light symptoms and I'm I'm getting myself in trouble here. <laughs> it it it, it depends it, it depends who's doing the testing, right? If yeah. it's internal testing, I, let's be honest, pro cycling is not uh, doesn't have a track record of being the most honest sport on the planet. It has a track uh, record record of dodging tests. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably the more likely scenario, right? It's like, like uh, as a friend said to me earlier this week, uh, you can't test positive if you don't test yourself. And mm-hmm. he was speaking of COVID. Uh, that is probably that's probably the more likely route or avenue of of avoidance is is that well, you just don't test yourself. You just try not to take the COVID test. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Let's let's hope that none I think of that happens. It just just on that note, I think though, you know, look at Almeida. He did have his worst day, the day mm. prior to having to leave the race. So the decision might be taken out of their hands. You know, you wouldn't stay in the race for the pink jersey if you're not in the pink jersey. Yeah, and you have COVID. Like, so could yeah, you know, could yeah. sort itself out. Regardless, let's hope that that doesn't happen, and that's not what that's not what impacts the. The final GC. We, what we want to impact the final GC is tomorrow, Saturday's uphill finish and Sunday's time trial, which we will get into the details of in a little bit. Like I said, there's some other some other names in that top ten that I think are, are worth mentioning. Jan Hurt made his way up there. Intermarché Wanti Gobert Materio has two riders in the top ten. They have Hurt and Domenico Pozzovivo, which is fantastic uh, for a team which is one the poorest in the entire world tour and two like only about a year ago when taco vanderhorn won that giro stage i think it was stage three of last year's giro in a in a 186 kilometer breakaway won by four seconds and it was a it was basically seen as a miracle it was like how the heck did this this little team this team that not that long ago was fighting for start money and and kermesse money up in belgium how did they end up with a giro stage win and now we're looking at them they've got two riders in the top 10 of the giro and stage wins to their name so a, a super impressive giro d'italia from intermarche in general juan p lopez is still up there in ninth and hugh carthy has worked his way back into the top 10 in 10th he's got only 61 seconds on alejandro valverde and so I think it's totally feasible that Hugh could could keep himself in the top ten at this Giro. So it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting group up there. There's going to be a lot of stuff happening in the race this weekend that is maybe not directly related to essentially Jai Hindley versus Carapaz versus to some extent Landa. That is was worth keeping an eye on. If you've got if you've got favorites, uh, whether a Hugh, you're a Hugh Carthy fan or a Pozzovivo fan or whatever, if you've got favorites in that top ten, it's worth keeping an eye on where everybody is this weekend because there's still there's a lot to play for. So so my question here is, how do we get here? Like, why is it still three seconds between the top two and a, and a minute and a bit between the top three? What is it about this Giro that has resulted in this? Well, I guess the obvious answer, I'll, I'll go into it in the obvious, is just how closely matched, especially Carapaz and Hindley are. They've... You know, they have sort of set themselves above Landa again, and Landa's sitting at a minute behind, but I think at 
I wouldn't say that a minute behind flatters him, but he certainly has looked like third best of those three on the podium. Um, and then beyond that, it's like the complete opposite. You know, once you go beyond the podium, the gaps are actually huge. Like, as we already mentioned, Nibali's at five over five minutes in fourth place. And, you know, I think it was the 10th place is at 17 minutes. Uh, <laughs> Hugh in 10th place, seven, 17 minutes. So it's like the two ends of the extreme here where the top three are so tightly matched. But, of course, that's where you want the, the, the you know, the, the close gaps. And, you know, it's really setting us up for, for a perfect final weekend. As to how that's... How that's actually happened, yes, two closely matched riders, but they've also been, you know, they've had plenty of luck to get through the three weeks unscathed so far. Uh, but they've also had great teams around them, and Bora have been willing to, you know, go on the attack, chase stage ones, get stage ones, which ultimately probably took a bit of the pressure off uh, Henley. They also came into the race with three or four potential leaders, which again meant there was no pressure on one person from the start. And it just, they probably just, you know, have built themselves up to this point and built up so much sort of morale within the team that you know that's you know helping Henley to a certain extent at the moment as well whereas any of us have taken an opposite approach where they're just you know completely protecting one rider I don't think we've seen anybody else do anything other than work for Carapaz for this entire race just two different approaches and you know so far both of them are, are working I mean Henley has still had to have the legs though in some pretty key moments and, and were you expecting him to be able to do this i wouldn't say i was uh, amy amy jones who was on i think one of the episodes right at the beginning of the year reminded us in a meeting about an hour ago that she had kind of called this uh or at least was hoping for it but i think the rest of us were probably not i wasn't expecting this out of jai henley because the last time he did this at a giro it was a really weird giro and riders of the sort of caliber of carapaz were not there orlanda were not there uh so i wasn't were you expecting it? Was anybody else? No, he's clearly it? better than he's ever been at this race. Um, yeah, it's really great to see him matching Carapaz quite so evenly. I, I would go as far as to say that he is he's probably the best in the race at the moment. Uh, I, you know, It's impossible to tell, obviously, and Carapaz is ahead, so it seems a bit silly to say, but at least from what I've seen, Henley looks like the stronger of the two. And yes, to answer your question, I, I didn't predict this. I think... Uh, I even give a couple of reasons to Amy why he might not uh, work out for the GC, but it's, it's it is brilliant to see, and I I do think that he he seems to be racing with a lot of maturity, and as although I think he is the strongest when it does get whittled down to the final three, he is calm enough to say I'm going to wait for the right moment to make the difference rather than trying to make the difference in every moment. Uh, and I think the best example of that was today when, which is stage 19, we're recording just after stage 19, and uh, Cohen Bowman won the stage. But at one point, Landa forced a gap on the final climb. And Hindley was, he's, we didn't actually see the attack, but it, it certainly looked from the shots that we did see that Hindley was more than willing to just turn to Carapaz and say, here, look, you're in pink. You do the chasing. I'm happy to you know, happy to let Landa right away or, or whatever. He, he obviously wouldn't have been happy to see Landa take time back on him, but he was willing to play that game. He was riding with maturity and experience. And I, f- I think he's, as much as Bora rode today, I do think the plan all along, or certainly the plan since the last mountain stage on Wednesday is to bring it into Saturday 
and really try and make a big enough difference that he can go into time trial with confidence of keeping the pink jersey. Henley, that is. Agreed. There have been some some big uh, dropouts out of the Giro in the last couple of days, and I think one of them is more related to the GC than than the other. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. Joao Almeida, him leaving the race, is important to the GC because he was up there. But Richie Port is probably actually more relevant for that battle for the pink jersey, right? Uh, because Port was probably a pretty key, well, is, has been a very key rider for Carapaz over the last two and a bit weeks. Do we think that Port's, the loss of Port affects Ineos's ability to, to run the, the strategy that they've been running over the last couple of weeks? After just what you guys said about uh, Hindley watching Lander got the road, here's a proposition for tomorrow. They're talking on Eurosport about Jai Hindley racing. Like, what's the point in racing for second when he's already done that before? You know, he's so close that surely you go all guns blaze and you try and take you know, a, a career changing victory. How often do you, are you in the position to win a Grand Tour? For Lander, he hasn't podiumed at a Grand Tour since 2015. So does he ride defensively to try and secure a podium, which, you know, how big is that for him now? I know he's obviously accomplished a lot more. But then if then without Port, does if Lander goes up the road, who chases for Carapaz? You've got Sivakov, you've got Narvaez. It's a big day tomorrow. Yeah, and Carapaz uh, learned um, on that great stage over the weekend that one attack, his big all-guns-blazing attack, doesn't work on the rivals he's got at this race. So he he yeah he, I think he'll miss he'll miss Port for that reason yeah. If we if we look at tomorrow's stage, you've got the Paso San Pellegrino tops out after eighty kilometers first category claim. We've got the Paso Portoi or Paso Portoi, which is the Chimacope highest point of the entire race. All before we get to the summit finish at Marmolada. So you know certainly, although Sivakov has stepped up this week and seems to be you know in in his best form so far this Giro, losing Richie Port. A, you know, sort of key lieutenant in the mountains and certainly the last uh, mountain domestique for Carapaz on every claim that we've had so far in this Giro is going to be a, a big loss. You know, that that could potentially leave Carapaz isolated after the Paso Portoi if Sivakov has a, has a bad day. So, you know, although ultimately he may, Carapaz may still get through, I'm, I'm sure they're slightly nervous tonight having lost uh, Richie Port. It feels to me like the kind of day that that teams might be trying to get riders up in a breakaway that that, that can then come back. Like I, I can see Bora doing that more than Ineos. I mean, Ineos has not generally been running that as a tactic over the last couple of weeks, but Bora's doing it all the time. They've got people in the breakaway almost every day, so that that could be that could kind of work in Bora's favor. It's the it's the it's the kind of scenario where there's you know there's a decent amount of time in between these climbs where having somebody in the valley can be massive. And if Bora is able to stick someone up the road, it, it's going to be a could be a, a fascinating tactical battle, I think, between the two teams. And like I said, I think Port's loss for Ineos makes it really hard for them to use the tactic they have been using, which is that sort of, well, it's the train, it's the sky train. It's the dominance of individual climbs versus kind of more clever, more clever tactics. That said, that team has has pulled off some blinders before right i mean let's let's not forget chris Froome a couple of years ago uh they know how to do that sort of thing if necessary so i wouldn't i wouldn't completely write them off just because right off their ability to play the tactics on saturday stage just because they lost lost port 
I'll be interested to see where the where Bora Hansgrove t- try and put the pressure on and Byron Victorious for that matter because the Port Doyle, although it's the Chimacopi, is the easiest climb of the day probably. Um, and the Fadaya, I mean, I've done that myself. It is the worst climb I've ever done in my life. And it, the, la- it, the last seven or eight kilometres, uh, if you l- look at the gradient maps, they're all black. Um, and it, so it's going to be, there are going to be gaps at, that, at the top. But I w- So if Ineos had a full quota of riders, I think they'd be, they could try and keep it till the last climb. But I think Bora might try and rip it apart sooner and drop Ineos domestiques. I mean, if you had to design a final two days of a race with three a three-second gap on GC, how would you improve tomorrow's stage and then have that sort of weird time trial with a, a lump in the middle? It's per- they've 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 smashed it. It's, it's amazing. I, I mean, we were t- we were talking about this on Slack earlier and and how apparently I volunteered to write this story uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that the the. The course designers at this Giro did a phenomenal job. And granted, we, we always say this, the riders make the race, right? But it certainly helps to have a course that is this cleverly arranged, I think. And the fact that we're coming in to the finale with this small gap is, it feels like no accident to me. I mean, th- th- there's there's been some key mountain stages, obviously, and it, it certainly helps that the top two, three are all very evenly matched. But the, the, the course itself has been, at the same time, really exciting particularly with some of those circuits and things like that while keeping the gc battle from completely exploding uh and yeah johnny i can't can't imagine i can't imagine a better final a better way to come into a final weekend of of a grand tour nor can i imagine two better stages really i'm not a huge fan of the final day time trial but the final day time trial unless something crazy happens tomorrow the final day time trial is going to be edge of your seat stuff on sunday yeah let's hope so Let's hope there aren't too many cavernous gaps tomorrow. Related, related to that, uh, so before we move on to what exactly is coming up in the next few days, which we've alluded to a number of times already, yesterday, Thursday, was really the last opportunity for the sprinters, and they screwed it up again. Uh, what's, what's going on here? Ronan, I wrote a piece. Both of us kind of worked on it. We talked a little bit about it on Monday. But like, what's what's happening to make these sprint trains not be able to figure this out? Yesterday feels to me like a bit of a game of chicken between Groupama and the rest. And Groupama was basically like, nah, we're good. We got three stage wins already. And I think that's that's a big part of the reason why we ended up where we ended up. Possibly that. And I guess only really Groupama can, can you know, confirm that, yes or no. But I also just think that the the breakaways are now so sort of inspired by the success of other breakaways you know not just in this Giro, but in general that you know the, it is now so much more of a possibility a real possibility that actually a, a breakaway can take the win on any stage uh that you know they're they're they're, they're taking a much more let's i'm very reluctant to say a more professional or a more intelligent approach to breakaways but you know because it's professional sport it's always been you know the, the writers always take it with the utmost seriousness but the days of uh, apart from Diego Rosa on stage six, the days of the completely doomed breakaway seem seem done because the the riders are just there's so much they're so clued in now just to how how to really uh, maximize their their chances and you know it, it was sort of ironically I think it sort of this all started out from what most people thought might be the the 
death knell for breakaways and that the smaller teams that was introduced a couple of years ago, those teams, because they had a rider less, they wanted to control the breakaway much more, give them much less of an advantage and keep them in check so that they could be caught easier and still get a sprint finish. But the breakaways have sort of worked out, well, you know, if they want to keep us at a minute or two minutes or three minutes, well, fine, we'll ride as easily as we possibly can. <laughs> the bunch will just ride easier behind and we'll all be happy until the point that the breakaway gets an opportunity, be it a climb or just getting close enough to the finish that they can start riding full gas and then it's sort of too hard and too late for the for the peloton to, to bring them back. And the perfect example we've seen twice in this year was the first one not so successful, but sort of proved the point more that the break was uh, pinned at three minutes or so. I can't remember the exact stage now, but it was the, the last stage that Arno Demar won. But the breakaway sort of recognized that you know, while the peloton can only go so fast in the climb without dropping sprinters, we can go as hard as we want, build up enough of an advantage, and then maintain it all the way to the finish. And the same yesterday again. I, you know, there's a lot of talk about the sprinters messing it up and all that. I think it's just the way the tactics are playing now that, try as they might, it's sort of fallen into favor of the breakaway a bit. You know, and despite everything we know telling us that four riders can't outpower a peloton and three minutes isn't enough to get to the finish it actually is now enough to get to the finish more often not more often than not but quite often yeah that stage 13 i think was the most interesting to me even though the break wasn't actually successful because like so pro, pro cycling stats in their little like live ticker thing had a a chart of essentially breakaway gap over over distance right was the was the xy axis or y y x axis i should say um and it looks like the stage profile. Like, it, it literally, you could overlay it, and it just looks like the stage profile because basically, whenever it went uphill, which there was one big sort of cat three in that stage, when it went uphill, the breakaway knew that that was their moment to take time. And like you said, they went from 3.15 ish to almost seven minutes over the course of one climb. And then you've got all of a sudden the, the sprinters teams were like, crap, like we wanted to keep the three and a half minutes, and now, oops, now they have seven. They, they pulled it back inside the last kilometer. And then you add in all this sort of other stuff that we talked about in that story, arrow trickery and all the rest. And it just makes it harder and harder and harder for the Peloton to actually pull those moves back. And I'll be interested to see if that if that replays itself in the Tour de France as well, or if this is just sort of a, a Giro phenomena. I mean, the, 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 the roads tend to be narrower. They tend to be more corners. They tend to be a bit lumpier at the Giro than at most of the Tour de France. Like Tour de France ends up on highways a lot of the time, uh, so I wonder whether the sort of difference in course and and also just difference in in what's at stake. I wonder whether those two things will change what we've seen at the Giro versus what we will see at the Tour de France this summer. Mark Cavendish did mention it in his interview yesterday morning before the stage. He's like, "Yeah, the days of pamphlet sprint stages are almost gone. They, it used to be every sprint stage in Giro was pancake flat." And now they seem to stick a climb into every single one of them. And that, that's helping the the breakaway as well. But to go back to that stage 13, you know, had the breakaway survived that day, you know, I'm sure the, the daggers would have been out on Twitter, you know, calling out the the break the sprinters teams like, why didn't you control it better? Why didn't you work better together, this, that, and the other? But what could they do different? They ride harder in the climb. They drop their sprinter and have to wait for him anyway. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's a real catch-22. It's just, and, and that's... That's where I go back to, you know, credit has to go to the breakaway and just the the approach that the, these riders are taking to, to you know, increasing their chances of success. Yeah, that was my question is how do the, what is the sprint team's rebuttal 
to what's going on here? Do they chase them hard in the valley and nearly close the gap and then let them get a bit more gap up the climb? Not, not to contradict myself, but I do think that while the breakaway riders have sort of, you know, changed their strategy or renewed their strategy to increase success, the Peloton and the sprinters teams are sort of not quite there yet in that they will still look to the the team's best sprinters, uh, the race's best sprinter team to control the break, or they'll put one rider each up to control the break, or they'll... You know they're, they're just constantly trying to save one more rider or use one less rider in the chase um and you know they'll they'll usually put their climbers up to control the break or they'll there's just not as much uh all-in attitude as as the break would have and i get it they have to try and save the riders for the lead out but there's no sense in having a lead out if you're not sprinting for the win <laughs> and what we seen yesterday was that they still had no lead out because they had to go so hard in the final that the lead out riders were used up before they were planning to anyway. So I think maybe, you know, if they all, you know, if they all recognize they've got the same interests and then work towards the common goal, much like the breakaway has to do, you know, and, and there is an element of that, but I think it just needs to be increased a, a bit more that they're more willing to sacrifice their riders, you know, earlier to, to ensure that the break comes back together. And interestingly, just on that point as well, um, we mentioned in the article yesterday, Josh Portner, his theory is that the only, his words were, the only antidote is for the whole peloton to go full arrow. Uh, so <laughs> take from that what, what you will. But, you know, we do still see some riders in jerseys and shorts and non-arrow frames and that, you know, chasing a breakaway who are fully decked out and arrow head to toe. It, it makes a difference at those speeds. It absolutely does. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see I, I, teams working together or just, you know, they, they they keep the breaks gap even shorter. Like maybe three and a half minutes is, is too much. Maybe it, maybe it has to be 90 seconds so that when you hit the climb, you know it's going to go to four instead of go to seven, right? Last laugh yesterday goes to uh, Rui Costa, who single-handedly took the break from two and a half minutes to just over a minute with like 100k to go, literally with one turn on his own on the front. And then he got the whole peloton giving him abuse for a good few kilometers. And had they just kept it at the minute that he brought it down to, <laughs> different story. He knew. He knew. He knew. He's been around, around, been around the block a couple times, old Rui. Before we wrap up today, let's talk in a little bit more detail about tomorrow and Sunday. So, Saturday, big mountain stage. Who wants to talk me through it? Kit, you've done the climb, so maybe best. <laughs> yeah, okay. We can do that. I've ridden two of the climbs on it, yeah, um, on the same day as well, but I did it much lower than they did. They will, even. Um, so tomorrow we have uh, a 168-kilometer stage, so quite long for this year, eh? um, uh, that finishes with the last summit finish, uh, what they're calling it Marmalada. It's actually the Paso Fedaya, but it goes up to that iconic rock formation in the mountains of the Dolomites. But before they get there, we have the first category, Paso San Pellegrino, uh, just before halfway. And then- Like it, the water? Like the, yeah, I think it's the same area. It's I just the, I Googled it yeah. and it is. <laughs> and then the highest point of the Giro this year at the Paso Pordoi before the, well, when you put it all together, it's a pretty long descent before the final climb of the race 
So likely to be decisive if if not for the front two then it'll be decisive all over the top 10 i would imagine uh because a finale like that that's that difficult is always going to be that way which then sets us up for sunday the time trial ronan you like time trial bikes and so i'm gonna assume that you are very into this stage uh you tell me about it oh love a good time trial (laughs) (laughs) and let's hope this is a good time trial the last time we had such a close time trial was obviously with Jai Henley as well and Theo Gegenhart, but that seemed like a foregone conclusion that Theo Gegenhart was going to you know, beat him that day. But if we come into Sunday stage with the top two as closely matched, as closely, uh, if we come into Sunday's time trial with the top two as close together as they are currently, it will make for a real exciting stage because not only are they both notably not time trialists, but there's also a large-ish climb on the course. It's only a fourth category, but you know, with the 17-kilometer uh, time trial and pretty much five of those kilometers uphill, it you know it, it will it will play its part. Um, it will play its part in the in the time trial, and yeah, it should make for a exciting finish to the Giro. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we do come into that time trial quite close and uh, the best rider wins. Yeah, it's it's a the climb rises about 250 meters was that 800 something feet um so yeah like you said not not massive but not nothing uh and certainly you know enough to probably shake up the way that that this tt would normally go Uh, it's not pan flat that that's important just important thing to know there's there would be nothing worse than to see Carapaz and Henley fight it out on a pan flat time trial. <laughs> <laughs> but they were they were separated by just about seven seconds, I think, in the opening time trial. Um so yeah, it's it, it it's just it, it it could be all over by tomorrow evening or it could come down to the final time trial. And if it does, it's uh, it's a course that you couldn't really pick between the two of them on, I think. Yeah, just to remind everybody uh stage one time trial granted very short kind of a a different thing stage two stage two time trial thank you kit uh it's been a long week uh (laughs) they were separated by it was seven seconds i believe carapaz one of the two in the duel of the two uh he was 28 seconds back on simon yates whereas jai henley was 34 seconds back so six seconds uh Six seconds between the two. Jai Henley was 34 seconds back on Simon Yates. And, I mean, if you sort of do the math on extend that time gap out to a longer TT, it, it you know, in theory then, Jai needs something like 15-plus seconds uh, to, to sort of be safe. 20-plus if he really wants to be safe. But that, that math doesn't really work because the, the, you know, the two TTs, they, they're not apples to apples. Uh, and so you can't really just linearly do that math um but nonetheless i think it's pretty clear that jai probably needs to be in the pink jersey on saturday night to have a a real shot at at winning this bike race the other big question that remains to be seen is whether rick zabel will go for that kom in the middle again because israel (laughs) premier tech need to do something this race so that'll be something to watch for as well but he doesn't there's no reward for it this time, though. Or is there? Honour. Oh. Honour and, <laughs> and, and purpose. They, they, they could come away. If, if he was to take that fastest time on that KOM there, uh, Johnny sounds like might write a story about it, which would be 
the biggest news Israel would have taken from this duo. <laughs> so there, there is that reward. For a team that is that is in a relegation scrap, they don't mm. seem to have any particular sense of urgency. For around. a team that is in a rele- relegation scrap, this tells you all you need to know. Yeah, that, that, meaning that maybe is why they're you know rooted to the bottom of the world tour table at the moment is that they're just not you know scoring on stages and getting up in the overall and you know if you look back to last year's Giro Dan Martin won a stage and was top 10 overall and that you know as as unbalanced as the point system is that's still a haul of points that they're missing out on this year and yeah granted Dan Martin's a difficult rider to replace um he, you know, one of, the, one of the best climbers in the world was usually good for a stage one here or there and a top ten. There's not very many writers about that like that about. Very true. Alex Dowsett could do something uh, on on Sunday, right? He he did crash the other day, I think. So yeah, so that's just I was what just they looking needed. At, yeah, I was looking at his results from from this morning. He came across line 35 minutes down. Now, normally, without the crash, I would have said, okay, saving his legs for as much as possible for getting through the final weekend and getting to the time trial a little bit fresh. I remember a couple of years ago when Chad Haga won the TT right at the end of the Giro in Verona. Very similar I was chatting TT. with him afterward. Yeah, very similar TT. And Chad was basically like, yeah, like I won. If everybody's fresh, I don't win this time trial. But I basically spent the last week doing absolutely nothing i think what was was ghana in that race as well there were yeah. some really good time trials in that race and chad's a good t-tier but he's basically like yeah like i was the only one of the sort of top 10 guys that didn't have to do anything for the last week and so i think you know Dowsett, if we cross fingers like he, if he feels okay after that crash he kind of is in the same boat you know coming in 35 minutes down today that's that's saving the legs right that's absolutely saving legs and you look at some of the other strong time trials left in the giro eduardo affini uh who was second both tts last year he's been in the breakaway the last couple days like he's going to come into the final tt pretty knackered as opposed to someone like dowsett who was not unless he's hurt from the from the crash we don't really know yeah, yeah. For for that exact reason, my pick for Sunday is Matteo Sobrero for Bike Exchange, who's had to do nothing since Yates went home and is the Italian national champion. Ooh, and Simon well Yates here isn't here to win the time trial, so. <laughs> and he's I, beat I, Sobrero's beat Ghana before, so. I couldn't choose between Sobrero and Thomas Degen, so if you're going Sobrero, I'll go for Thomas Degen then. <laughs> <laughs> that brings me to the last thing we must discuss on today's podcast, which must is. We really? We must. We uh. must. Now, the Suglatives Podcast Giro Fantasy League, which has 100, 137 people in it, which is pretty nifty, I think. At the moment, current leader, Super Mac Attack, with 140 points, followed by Vela Club member Tinker Magoo, uh, with 129 and Landsvik, who has been up there almost the entire Giro with 123. So it is still all to play for. Remember, the prize for the winner of this competition is you get to write your own ad for the podcast, and Shoddy must read it, <laughs> which is <laughs> just going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> so good luck to everybody. Uh, Ronan, where are you in this? Where are you in this list? Um, oh, behind me oh wow oh, there we wow. go just I'm yeah. glad you found that and <laughs> saved me having to find it that would have been it would have made it all the worse 
I have 72 points and I'm in 74th place. <laughs> uh, and Ronan, you have 66 uh, in 87th place. Well, Johnny, are, wait a second. If we had, if we, there was a, there was a stage this morning now, and uh, depending <laughs> on who you picked uh, or didn't pick, let's say, uh, you'll you'll have to add. F- is it 15 points for the win? Oh yeah, you you got points today. So yeah, I got max I... points today. So. I forgot to pick, so it all depends on what the what the algorithm gave me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I might be screwed. Regardless, both of us are well ahead of Johnny Long. Uh, yeah. In 132nd place out of 137 with 32 points. I, I crashed out on stage six, and now I'm focusing <laughs> on recovering for the Tour de France. <laughs> <laughs> what I have learned is that, you know, our lives get busy. I forget to do this. I have to. I just go put picks in for, like, almost the entire thing at the beginning otherwise i will absolutely forget and then you know i'll go in if i remember and make them a bit better but i have to just go pick from the start or else you end up with joao almeida winning sprint stages i've got i've got (laughs) an altitude camp before before copenhagen (laughs) so prepare for some big things Uh, all right well super mac attack uh we got we have a let's see british aussie and norwegian I think is our podium at the moment, followed by three Aussies and then another Brit. Uh, so national pride at stake here. And of Super, course, Super Mac attack could win it tomorrow with another before the final time trial. He could be, he could secure pink before the final time trial with enough. He could. I, I, I mean, if Super Mac well, attack makes a good pick tomorrow, then yeah, it, it'll be over. It'll be over. There'd be no way to, no way to come back in that TT. Don't know why I'm saying he, we don't know who it is. So, <laughs> Bay. Um, yeah. All right. That's it from us today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the little mini mini Friday episode. Not even that mini. It's been like 40 minutes. <laughs> but we'll be back on Monday with another episode of the Cyclantist podcast. I think I think Amy is back on Monday because she picked Jai Henley and we either get to gloat or she does. One of the two. And so we'll have her back <laughs> so we can make that happen. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you Monday. Bye-bye.